0: Two mid-40-year-old infantry officers trying to get comms.
1: (laughs) Two chimpanzees would have been more successful.
2: Welcome to Season 2 of The Unforgiving Sixty with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show... Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go, always, a little further.
0: G'day ladies and gentlemen and welcome to The Unforgiving 60 and to the second part of our very special double edition. I'm Ben Pronk and I'm joined by my faithful co-host Tim Curtis. Hi Tim. G'day Ben. Our second guest in this special double edition is Matt Williams. Matt was also in the military and after returning from active duty in Afghanistan, he started getting headaches. He dismissed them for a little while, but they kept coming back to the point where he decided to go and get them checked out. What he thought would be a simple visit to the doctor ended up being a pretty life-changing event. The cause of those headaches was a form of brain cancer that you can barely even pronounce that's going to share with us how he dealt with that news and what he's done since then including the genesis of his ridiculously popular Instagram site willie beating cancer enjoy <music>
1: Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. Hello, Timothy. <laughs> Hello, Benjamin. Um, ben. Yeah. A quote. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together.
0: I think that's Zulu wisdom. <laughs> Is it really? I think it's from Africa.
1: Ooh, I like it. What do you think about that? You probably think you can go fast alone
0: and go far alone i have done a solo full on <laughs> triathlon actually it wasn't that fast but i like the sentiment and i agree with it the it kind of harks back to a, another sort of piece of poetry we love from an author we love the mm-hmm. strength of the wolf is strength of the pack is the wolf the and strength, the strength of the wolf, of the wolf, is, wolf is the pack.
1: pack that's right well scott morrison used that little quote that was given to him by our next guest corporal matt williams
0: willie now we know willie through a couple of different means Um, i think a lot of australia knows willie through his very famous very honest very candid very funny uh, social media um, and particular instagram accounts we know him through my brother dan pronk who's had a bit to do with him over the years Um, But certainly, we're excited to be talking to him about his past, his service, and in particular, the current fight he's fighting. Mm. Yeah, what was his passion and how his
1: identity's changed. And this is a guy who had his 21st birthday on operations in Afghanistan as a member of the Australian Infantry and came home and started to have some headaches. And I don't want to corrupt the story, but I will punctuate this. Ben. Ben around 1700 people are diagnosed with brain cancer in Australia annually and 1200 die from the disease each year interestingly brain cancer kills more kids in Australia than any other disease and more people under
0: 40 than any other cancer this is super sobering stuff it is common it is impactful and it's very very sad but the thing that i love about willie's approach and i love about our conversation with him is that it's anything but and i think that a lot of the inspiration that people are getting from from willie's battle is that he's embracing it he's facing this challenge with such a positive resilient attitude let's get on with the show
1: And welcome back to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis, as always, with my co-host, Ben Prompt. G'day, Tim. When he's not here, and sometimes that makes life a little easier, we are joined via Zoom by Corporal Matt Williams. Willie, how are you going?
3: Oh, I'm really well, boys. We figured out the tech, and um, we're off on our way to a podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> to provide a bit of a background, um, Matt was having some justifiable fun at our expense to non-millennial officers trying to get comms uh, by ourselves, which is pretty hopeless. But um, you you taught us how to do it, mate. Thanks. Mm. And
1: a long time in coming, Willie. We've been talking about getting you on the show for quite some time, so it's fantastic to finally have you with us. Oh, I'm fucking stoked to be here. It's been <laughs> like... I don't know how long have
3: you guys been podcasting like 12 months yeah Ooh, a bit longer
1: over yeah, yeah. just okay. on a year yeah 14 15 it was like
3: i was trying to think about today. i'm like i reckon like as soon as you guys launched I, I followed and i'm like hey look lads if you need someone i'm happy to happy to jump on and yeah yeah let's do it <laughs> just our timings just didn't um didn't line up
0: and in fact last time that we we had a false start was it last week you you but he um, stood us up for a pretty inconsequential activity last time we tried, didn't he? Yeah, let's talk about that, Willie. What happened? Why did you stand us up?
3: Yeah, well, look, the big boss came on, uh, who outranks all of us, um, came on to have a yarn to me, um, who, being the Prime Minister. So mm. he gave me the same time uh, that you guys did. And I was like, well, sorry, lads. <laughs> um, I better take this phone call instead of, um, instead of this Zoom meeting.
0: Yeah, we know where we stand, Willie.
1: So the Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, called you out on Anzac Day dawn service. Let's come back to that. But we were stood up. And how do you get stood up? How does the Prime Minister reach out to someone to call them out on Anzac Day, Willie?
3: Fuck, I don't really know. Like, I don't even know how it came about. I got a call off uh, a couple of weeks ago, like before he called me, of his office of um his lead speechwriter. And he basically just wanted to know some background about me um and talk about sort of resilience going through um a tough time which Australia is currently. Mm. Um and you know that a lot's changing and how I've already in some respects gone through that change into isolation.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um and thankfully a lot of people haven't done that but everyone is doing it slightly at the moment. And I half thought the boys were having me on <laughs> um, or that this was just a guy because a lot of my mates run some pretty intricate plans um have a go at me, um, and then a couple of weeks later, I get a text off this same number going, "Hey, the big boss will call you um, today at or, or tomorrow, whatever it was, at like 1400 I'm like, "Is the big boss scomo or my CEO?" Uh, and <laughs> <had> no idea. <laughs> so thank God I answered the phone with um, ending in Sir anyway. Um, instead of just like, "What up?" Um, <laughs> And, yeah, ended up, oh, Willie, and it's Willie, it's Scotty. And I'm like, as in the Prime Minister, Scotty? He's like, yeah, that one.
0: (laughs) Did he say Scotty from marketing or was it it quite?
3: (laughs) I should have done that. He said, Willie, it's Scotty. I'm like, I want from marketing? (laughs) What was
1: your heart rate at this point in time? Were you nervous when the Prime Minister calls you?
3: More so because if I say something stupid and it gets back to my unit, you know how shit rolls downhill? Well, that's rolling down from the very top.
1: It's like when you get called up to your commanding officer's office, Willie. It's, you're only getting called up for two reasons. You're
0: about to get promoted or awarded or sacked.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah one of the two.
0: Don't do don't bring your brew mug. So, mate, let, let's circle back to that. But why don't we start with a bit of background on you and in particular sort of um, how you got to the point where the, the Prime Minister's calling you up at 1,400 on a Tuesday for a chat.
3: Well, it depends where you want to start, and you know, there's been... Lots in um, the last couple of years and lots before that as well.
0: Why don't we, we talk sort of pre-diagnosis, a bit of the, the backstory, story, um, just to give a flavour of, of just the kind of guy you are, Willie, really. and then we can talk a, a little bit about what's happened since that fateful day. Warn and Bull to 2018, maybe that
1: window. Yeah.
3: Oh, God. Um, well what a different person I was, especially then, um, drinking and getting on it and still to this day have run, I'd say, the second biggest party, um, in school, second to Corey Worthington.
2: The teenager holds an alcohol-fuelled party for hundreds of kids, while his unsuspecting parents are on holiday. 16-year-old Corey Worthington is now facing not only the wrath of mum and dad, but a $20,000 fine from police. I spoke to him a short time ago. Corey, thanks for joining us. The only question that I can think to ask is, what were you thinking?
3: Um, I wasn't really. Um, in year 12, my grad party, um, which then led into I joined Kapuka two days after my graduation. Um, and I was still very hungover on the bus to Kapuka. What went really well for me, you know, standing at attention the other way and with some, um, some full track yelling me bloody prick out at me. But, um, it was a big change. Um, I'd say I'll we'll stay, still say, um, in my life, even with cancer, the biggest change I've ever had was that three months at Kapuka, and especially the most I've ever struggled. I hated it. Um, hmm. you know, I think it was changing who I was. Like you know, I'd, I'd been for eighteen years this one mould, and then you had three months to remould me into something else. Um, and it was it was a big change.
0: I hated it at the time. Look back sort of with some level of fondness or, or just look back and thinking that was a suck fest?
3: Um, I look back at it with fondness as far as I know why it was the way it was. Mm-hmm. Like I understand these guys have three months to make you from a civilian into a soldier, but I still think that still sucked. It's like, like a school, <laughs> school camps, school camps suck when you're on it. You get home, like, that was pretty, that was pretty good. Yeah. Um, it's not like that. It was sucked when I was there and then I'm, six seven years on i'm like no oh, that's still sucked
0: <laughs> <laughs> what, what what do you look back on what what changed you said it, it sort of remolded you and i assume some of that was for the better what what from that kapuka so for our listeners that's the initial entry training into the military or core uh, soldier training into the australian army um what what of that did you take away as as a positive change
3: Um, I think the biggest one for me, um, was growing up very, very fast. You know, you, you, I went from stuffing around at school with no real worries to then you're in a real, um, grown up world. Um, and and that sort of respect of, there are people, whether it's just by rank, but there are people that you need to respect based off that alone, um, that they are higher than you in this workplace, Mm. that you have to respect, even if, and it's a bit of like, you salute the rank, not the man. Um, But if you think in a normal, especially at school, that doesn't exist. Um, Students are more looked after than the teachers. Um, You know, it's sort of one of those things. You're all equal-ish in a way or Mm. protected so much. And now you're into this where, no, I have two hooks on my chest. I outrank you, therefore I'm in charge. Um, And even if you hate them, you learn to respect, well, they're still there. Um, and that's something you have to carry through the rest of your career. Cause you will meet some pricks. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, they're not there for no reason. Mm. Um, and learning that was a big, big curve for me. Very big.
0: So from a very hungover sort of first day at Kapooka got out through there and then to
3: Singo. Singo. Yeah. School of, inf. um, still best time in my career, I'd say. Um, as far as it's the most um, sort of you're with well, I was there when it was just males um, and I'm sure it hasn't changed at all the way that sort of everything runs, mm. but it was just sort of, yeah, the boys the whole time, like you worked incredibly hard. Um, but when I was, like really like-minded guys um, and there was no, not as much stuffing around, it wasn't making beds. It was really infantry related stuff. And Monday to Friday, you'd learn, a new skill and then exciting skill. It's not how to make your bed or how to iron your uniform. It's like week three, Lance, we're going out, we're shooting um, high explosive weapons, mm. uh, Monday to Friday. And then Friday afternoon would come. You'd all jump on the digger shuttle bus into Newcastle, grab a bloody slab of beer on the way. And there was a BYO strippers would go to and then drink that and then head out. And that was just, it was just um, so communal like that. And when you got to a unit and guys, move off in with their misses and you sort of lose that a little bit Mm. um it's best on my career i'd never want to do again
1: so the school of infantry willie at the time must have had a real focus because in the background was iraq and afghanistan how was that in terms of just getting people calibrated and ready for the probability that you were going to go to an infantry battalion and go straight on operations
3: well, mine, um, it was a weird time at singo for us. So I was there the early 2015, so not that long ago. Um, but it was really all the combat operations, if you will, were wrapping up in Afghan for regular army being really 2014 is when they wrapped up in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we were expecting to roll back in um, to those operations in some form in the army um, or at least really bolstering for it. But we'd lost a shitload of infantry numbers because at the end of those ops, a lot of guys went, oh, whoa, and, and, and then separated uh, from defense. We lost a lot. So they were really pumping us through. So I did uh, my Kapuka and then I went into holding for six weeks. I think at Kapuka, uh, Sorry, at Singleton uh, just primarily due to a, a um, platoon marches out of Kapuka every week and they only raise a platoon in Singleton every second week. So there's was a massive hold up of guys um, to sort of churn through into the units um, into the battalions. So it was one of those real times where it was um, really uh, just pumping guys to get through, but the, all the section commanders there at the time, Um, majority of mine were from six RAR and my platoon sergeant um, was a Royal Marine commando who laterally transferred. Mm -hmm. They were all combat combat really hardened guys. You know, they would have been a digger in 2008 full track by 2014 um, and had done, you know, here, there and everywhere within the regular army. Uh, And they were pretty hard dudes. I'm still mates with all of them. at the time you're not, but after it's sort of like, you know, there's a reason behind all of this. Mm. Um, and yeah, you know, I think they had that real hands on experience, um, that I fear in some ways I haven't been back to Singleton since, but I was like, it does that still exist that, you know, there's not many guys who are still full tracks, um, who have had that level of combat experience they did when I was there.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I I remember certainly my time at RMC. I'm sure, Tim, you're the same. I mean, this is at the end of a 30-year piece and no one had any experience. You know, There was the odd Rwanda campaign uh, ribbon. There was the odd uh, Somalia sort of veteran in the training institutions, but it was all very theoretical. And I remember my dad talking about his time at Portsea, the officer training school back in the day, um, and it was just all Vietnam veterans. And that real focus on uh, this is the in-order to, you know, we're learning these tactics, you're learning the range of an AK-47 because someone's going to be shooting one of these things at you, not just as a theoretical pursuit. And I think it really changes that dynamic when you've got that experience in the the uh, instructor, Carter.
3: Yeah, for sure. They're all good dudes, and God, they looked after us. Uh, <laughs> they, they really did. And I, I like to think that every platoon's like that, you know, run really run by the sergeant and the corporals. Um, and now that I'm at that level, I sort of look at it and go, yeah, well, there's, it's really made me respect being um, at that rank now, the why they did things um, and how they did things. that uh, And even to this day, I'm like, yeah, they did such a good job.
1: Mm. So you leave Kapooka, Willie, and you go and join a new family in your infantry battalion. Talk to, talk to us about life in an infantry battalion as a new soldier.
3: Oh, shitting myself. Um, cause you don't know what you're rocking up to. It's like, you know, these dudes, seven came off operations, uh, 20, uh, 12, 13 was our last, um, op, at least when I got there. Uh, and there's still a lot of dudes in who are, you know, combat hard guys who are diggers who aren't, um, you know, corporals at Singleton are always watched, you know, that they can't step out of line and do the wrong thing. And they wouldn't anyway, but, it's not just diggers on the piss at the boozer. Um, And I was shitting myself going into, you know, a couple of hundred guys, most of which had combat experience. And then there's me, like 60 kilos wet at the time, Mm. um, shitting my pants, but it wasn't as bad as uh, all the stories about the initiations and everything. Some of it's true, but a lot of it's just digger net stuff that starts Mm. at, you know, one thing and then, you know, Chinese whispers at the other end, turns out a completely different story and it didn't happen.
0: Willie, when when I first got to an infantry battalion, one of the senior um, lieutenants there said, beware the first person who befriends you in the battalion. And he was sort of saying that the friendliest guy's probably got no mates and you, you probably don't want to get alongside him. Did you have any similar experiences?
3: Every, I think every single digger has the exact same experience. <laughs> they get told that and then you're like, nah. And it's bloody true. I remember the first bloke I met, and I won't say his name, um, but he recently, well, in the last couple of years, was then kicked out for meth. So,
2: <laughs>
3: yeah, probably right. But the funny thing is with that, I um, when I was a, you know, say four-year digger, I was driving um, out, out the front gate home. And as I was driving down the road, I saw these like four brand new lids, And at the time you can tell the new guys, cause they're in DPCU and we're in AMCU. And I'm like, it's Adelaide. It's like 45 degrees. Um, I pull over like, Hey lads jump in. I'll drive you up to the lines. Um, it's too hot. They jumped in, drove them up, dropped them off left. Um, and then the next six months, I didn't really have anything to do with them. And one of them came up to me and went, Oh, Look, man, like it's it's funny because me and all my mates, you were the first guy we met, and we thought you must be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're the no friends who's going to give the new kid a lift. Yeah, they
3: thought I was that guy. I'm like, <laughs> no, like, well, you're the first one we met, so you must be. And now they're like some <laughs> of the closest mates, but yeah. like you bloody pricks.
0: No, no good deed goes unpunished.
3: No. Nah. And so from there,
0: eventually, you you got your turn in the the combat zone.
3: Yeah, um, Combat Zone, different tour to a lot of people um, sort of think of infantry tours, Um, but as everything does, everything comes with its own challenges Um, and in many ways different challenges that are sort of outside what we train for a lot. Um, We train, you know, up the guts assault, (laughs) you know, it's combat stuff. You know, you're told this is a real peacetime-ish operation. You know, we are a reactive force, not proactive. Um, and that's sort of how it goes. You're sort of like, wait, what? And that can actually be very hard for guys to wrap their head around, especially, um, it was maybe two weeks before deploying. Uh, I got a phone call and said, we'd lost one of our, um, crew commanders, um, of the Bushmasters. And that I was required to go down to Puckapunyal like the next day, um, do my, uh, blue force tracker, like took course at the time mm. and then get qualified on a PMV. Um, to go over as a crew commander of a Bushmaster. Uh, I had to get a waiver because I was a digger at the time Um, and you had to be a full, like a corporal, like a full corporal to actually crew command um, one over there. Um, And I sort of asked like, fucking why me? Um, And the only answer was, you're the most social bloke we know and half of the, well, not half of them, there's three infantry guys um, in PMV platoon and the rest are truckies and we don't want this... Um, separation between the infantry and the truckies um, to develop over there because um, it is a longer tour. It was eight uh-huh. and a half months. Um, that happened about day two, anyway. <laughs> um, but um, it was a it was a funny one um, that I was then a crew a crew of a PMV um, and ended up um, my we didn't have a boss. We only had a sergeant in charge. Thank God, um, best thing ever for ORs. Um, but yeah he was infantry and I was infantry and there was only one other infantry guy who was a driver. So he was like, Willie, it's like click this behind closed doors, but you're the only one I really trust with navigation here. So I'll be convoy commander and you lead the navigation. Um, and I was like, I've never navigated a vehicle in my life except Google maps around Adelaide. (laughs) (laughs) But Kabul's just like anywhere else. Um, and I was shitting myself stepping out in those first couple of patrols, but, or well, I'll say patrols, real um, sort of route runs taking people or equipment to and from mm. uh, through Kabul.
1: So most of the listeners would never have been to Kabul. Just describe the streetscape, um, the experiences of looking out of that protected mobility vehicle, that uh, wheeled armoured vehicle. What, do you, what did you see? How did it strike you?
3: it's a funny place because there's memories of a better time. I'd put it mm. that at the gate of Oz at, um, Camp Karga. Um, and just at the gate, there's like from a distance, looks like a five star bloody quest hotel. Um, and as you get closer, you can tell it's just all run down and full of bullet holes and, and everything. And then you'll see, um, on one of the routes, it might've been route orange. Um, it's just a, it's just a dirt road basically. Um, with little bits of bitumen here and there, but then like a massive six lane overpass that just overpasses, you know, full concrete, everything. And then just to nothing. And it's like, it's memories of a better time. And then it's all gone to shit, all this stuff from the, I guess, seventies, eighties, um, where they really were, you know, charging along and now it's, um, Mm -hmm. very, um, very cultural based. It's, there's no one who's wearing different clothes. There's no shops as far as we would recognize. Um, it's, you know, your supermarket's buying street food, um, like a wet market on the side of the road. Mm. Um, very bloody dusty or very cold when I got there. It's the first time I ever saw snow when <laughs> I first landed in Kabul. Um, and the smell of human shit is overwhelming as soon as, yeah, I thought they were taking the piss out of me, the guys who'd been before. As soon as I stood off that um, uh, C 130, I was just like, oh shit, you're not lying about, about this smell, boys. <laughs>
1: And you spent your twenty second birthday, I think, in Kabul.
3: Twenty first. Twenty first. What a young pup! Um, yeah, it was um, one to remember. <laughs> um, but we got stuck. So the day after was the day the um, uh, the truck bomb went off in the Green Zone uh, near uh, Resolute Support headquarters, um, which is still to this day, I believe, the biggest ID ever to go off in Afghan. Um, well, least VP uh, like VPED. Um, but, um, the, yeah, the day before we were on, we got stuck in traffic for 14 hours, right in that area where the <laughs> bomb ended up going off, but you know, we didn't think of any time, but yeah, 14 hours came back. It was like midnight. Um, Sergeant called us all into the room. Um, and putting up pretty much explained, Willie, apparently you're famous for doing shoeies. Um, so I've got you a non-alcoholic beer from the um, German PX and, um, they've managed somehow to get a cake through one of the, <laughs> one of the, um, yeah. uh, civilian employees there. Um, and we had cake, what was awesome. Uh, and I had to show you a non-alcoholic beer, but, uh, <laughs> uh it was like, I'm not very, um, like I got not really mind where I spend a birthday. It's, you know, it's around good people and all my mates were basically there. So,
1: <laughs> mm. And is this a bit of a pivot point where your life started to change, Willie? At what point did you start to experience headaches?
3: Uh, it wasn't actually till I got – so I did um, eight and a half months in Afghan and then I got home um, and as any digger is from deploying cashed up, um, ended up travelling then for six weeks in Europe. Um, I got – so I deployed then did sub two corporal and then went to Europe for six weeks all in the same sort of year ish when I came home in that first week back from work, like say so the first week of Feb where everyone's bloody lazy and everything from their leave. Um, I just had a headache. I could not shake. Um, and like Friday morning I had to be like, look, like Starge, I can't do this back March. Like I just, my head's yeah. I think everyone's just like, <laughs> he's just been hung over. He's linging on some shit. Like yeah. he just traveled Europe for six weeks. He's almost like all <laughs> hung over. Um, and then that weekend I, uh, I did six skydives on the Saturday, um, from a B license. Uh, and then the Sunday came and I had headaches again and I rang up my, um, uh, my jump master and was like, look, I just can't, I can't jump today. And I think they just thought the same, you've hit the piss.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, and then I actually rang my corporal, uh, my seco on Sunday. And I was like, Hey, look, this is what's going on. And he's like, look, mate, I've had a mate die for brain aneurysm. Um, Monday morning, as an order, you were to go to the med center. I'm um, to like, drag you down there. Huh. Um, went in. And really the only reason I went in was codeine was holding it at bay. But in that first week week-ish of February, um, 2018 is when uh, codeine became a prescription drug, not over the counter anymore. Um, so I was like, fuck up, I have to go in. And they're like, look, you're in defense. It's really easy for us to send you to get a CAT scan. No worries. Fuck, here's a shit, go and, go and get one now. <laughs> Drove in, got a CAT scan, driving. Well, I was going to try I go home first and say the CAT scan took a bit longer, as all diggers would. <laughs> um, on my way home and then back to work, when the, um, uh, whoever, like the, the imagery person rang me. I'm not sure if they're a radiologist or not, but and it was like, "Hey, look, I can't tell you anything because I'm not a, I'm not your doctor, but I've sent some scans back to your doctor. You need to go see him straight away." And you're back.
0: Did you figure that that was good news at that point?
3: I figured that's bad. If they're calling me, uh, you know, like, you must have found something. Uh, but I was thinking, like, I don't know, it hit my head or I'd had, some, you know, you, you don't think this yeah. um, initially. At least I don't, anyway. Um, he got back in and a CAT scan, like a CT, is incredibly crap. Like it's really for seeing a broken bone, uh, not for seeing really soft tissue at least. Um, so my doctor, as soon as I got back, already had pretty much on his desk um, a referral straight for an MRI uh, that afternoon, got the MRI and then a neurosurgery appointment two weeks on um, with really no indication of um, what, was, what was going on.
0: What were the doctors sort of telling you at this stage? I mean, obviously the the diagnosis wasn't complete, but there's enough that they're concerned. There's enough that they want an MRI. What what are they? How are they broaching it to you?
3: Gee, I wish um I wish I could remember the exact words, but it was like sort of we found a um like a lump, sort of um, sort of a mass in your head. Um, you know, these are the dimensions about you know forty five millimeters by thirty six ish. Um, sort of bit bigger than a golf ball uh, mass in your head. And, and, you know, these are GPs um, as, as great as GPs are, you know, they're not mm. going to try and even if they think they know they're probably working outside their um, professional state to then try and give a diagnosis on that. Um, bloody fair enough. Um, but then we yeah, referred me straight to a, a neurosurgeon um, who then yeah, he diagnosed a couple of weeks later.
0: And what was the diagnosis?
3: Uh, So, well, that initial diagnosis was um, a uh, oligodendroglioma um, in the head, Um, and he actually and he said, "But we don't know until I give you a biopsy because we need to." All I'm looking at is a photo of something. You don't need to go and actually have pull a bit out, send it to pathology, um, and then tell me tell me what it is from the cellular makeup. Um, And I thought, you know, it was like two days after I was in. Um, getting a biopsy on my brain because, you know, we don't, we don't know what grade this is, what anything, because it could be anywhere from maybe he's wrong. um, And it's, you know, a grade one fuck may as well be a cyst and just let it go. Or it's a stage four GBM and I've got two weeks to live. Um, It's anywhere between that. That is the spectrum. You know, I know they look at the mass and everything, but they can, at, at that point you're sort of stabbing in the dark. Yeah. Um, but he did say look, a lot of people would choose not to have any. And I'm like, fuck that. I'm, <laughs> I'm having a biopsy. I want to know what this is at least. Yeah. Um, I was sort of hoping going in the biopsy, they'd just cut it out that I'd wake up and they would have just been like, look, we saw it. And we just thought, fuck it.
0: <laughs> well, we're here.
3: I oh, fucking wish. Um, but I had the biopsy and whatever, woke up, um, telling the nurse I'd, I'd woken up worse because they're like, Oh, wake up, wake up. How are you feeling? I'm like, Oh, I've had worse nights at uh, moose heads. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they, they didn't know what moose heads was <laughs> what? like the equivalent to the wool shit um, <laughs> to relate it back to Adelaide. But, um, and then I'm like, Oh, sweet. Well, what am I, am I going to know by like this afternoon? Um, and like, no, no, no. Pathology normally takes eight weeks on these
2: mm. <laughs> like,
3: fucking what? Like, mm. Uh, it's not like a blood test where it's a couple of hours it's weeks and weeks um, for whatever tests they have to do. Uh, so that eight week was pretty bad cause I didn't know whether it was it may as well be a pimple in my head through to kill me in a week. Mm. Um, and at the end of that eight weeks I went in to get um, the results and I'd fucked up at some point in the pathology, um, and needed to redo a test again so then it was going to be another like three weeks. Um, so I cracked the shits fair in my office in the doctor's office. Fair enough. I think, um, it's actually the doctor who did all that, the surgeon, um, not discrediting any of his skill, but he had zero sort of personal skills. Um, and I actually don't work with him anymore at all. Um, it's probably best for both of our healths. (laughs) Um, and my rank, my boss at the time, uh, lieutenant, didn't believe me uh, that. Well, I don't think he, he was sort of like, "Oh yeah, this guy, you know, you're going through a hard time. This guy might just be a bit of a prick." He came into an appointment with me, um, with this neurosurgeon. He walked in. He's like, "He's like, I thought you were going to put his head through the table, and I was about to as well." He's like, "I can't believe." Um, look, I sympathise with him because I'd hate to have a job where you're telling people all day yeah. they've got a brain tumour, cancer, you know whatever you want to call it. Um, so he probably. Probably a tactic of his to sort of, if you take away the humanness of you and see you as just a number, or a patient, it's a lot easier to deal with. Mm. Um, But it was pretty hard on me. He wouldn't even look me in the eye. I would just sort of look at a notepad. Yep, this is what's happening. This is your expectancy. This is what we're going to do. These are the options.
1: So you were diagnosed with a stage two brain cancer, Willie. And what was the prognosis?
3: Well, the bloody prognosis is all over the place with this crap, um, which sucks, but Look, the one thing we can confirm is it will very shorten my life um, by a significant amount. Um, if you go if you Google my, um, my sort of prognosis, it really says five to seven years from day of diagnosis. Um, but like any average or statistic, it's all bullshit because there's people that get diagnosed and then die of a car crash a week later who count as a um, number in this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then there's also people who have to live 20 years for them to get that five to seven year average. Um, And a majority of them are either very, very young uh, or very, very old um, that succumb to this illness. Um, If you actually look at the, the, well, there's not actually the results of statistics around what the time, 22 year olds being diagnosed with this and how long they live. That's not available. Um, That statistic and sort of in turn with that too however long that life expectancy is that they give you that data can only be as new as that is long so if they say you have a seven year life expectancy the data they collected had to all be from someone dying seven years ago from it um so whatever they've developed in those years doesn't Mm -hmm. is is not reflected yeah yeah
1: You've undertaken chemo for as far as you can go, for as long as you can go. Is that right, Willie?
3: Yeah. Uh, and even if they'd gave me the option, I probably wouldn't do more. That shit is so bad. I, <laughs> it's, it's, like, I, everyone in their life, you know, 50% of Australians get cancer in their life. Um, and 30% of Australians die of cancer in their life. Now, thank God, touch wood, most of those are 95 year olds. But those are the, raw statistics on it um so most people will see someone under chemo through their life and it is a horrible horrible thing um now i had a adverse reaction to it significantly worse uh, than uh most people will have on chemo the doctors were very surprised how sick i got um and they couldn't really find a reason for some of it um but some people just react differently to things um to the point i ended up uh, in ICU for two weeks, um, six months in cause I was just that crook. Um, Jeez. I couldn't, couldn't do anything. Um, worst time of my life. Um, but you know, with cancer, thank God through research and development, there's over 400 types of chemo, um, that exist at the moment for cancers. The problem is for me <laughs> is there's one type for any brain tumor. Um, and I've built, um, well, the doctors believe I've built an immunity to that one type. So it's sort of um, no option of that anymore.
0: <laughs> so the the sort of the sickness and and getting laid low from chemo that you've just described is probably miles apart from what many people, including myself, will will have known of you through your your Instagram page. Mm. Your sort of embracing of life and and the kind of amazing stuff you know for for anyone, let alone someone in the the midst of a brain cancer episode, that's. Uh, that you're doing on, on social media and on your Willie Beats Beating Cancer Instagram page is, buddy, mind-blowing, mate. Can you tell us about how that started about?
3: Yeah, well, that started and sort of blew up, actually a lot to do with buddy, um, fucking Dan Pronk, who you guys know well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I blame him for it. Um, no, a couple of guys. But basically in the beginning of a diagnosis like this, you're finding out new information every day, um, you know, everything about it and i just with you know that i was going through mental health issues as anyone would in that diagnosis when well, anyone should i guess <laughs> if you don't that's probably a bigger issue um but i figured well i can't afford to be ringing and texting a 100 people a day from yeah. work to my parents to my grandparents telling them exactly what's happening so i'm just going to put up a post and just i'm just going to say whatever i'm going through or what's happening in that and they can all see it there and
2: mm-hmm. they can
3: ask questions and then I'll answer it specifically, but I don't have time. Um, and then a couple of guys sort of jumped onto it somewhere. Uh, and then it blew up, um, in a way over that first month was, I sort of had the biggest, um, sort of sharp increase of exposure, I guess, um, into people were. I think because I'm pretty open and honest about things like, I, you know, I'm not shy. <laughs> that they, people sort of react to it. Um, and, oh shit, this is, this is really real, which is funny. Few and far between on Instagram, anything actually being real. Um, and you know, somewhat of a, a shit time people can draw, hopefully some inspiration off. Um, but I try I and be, I try and be as honest as possible.
0: And, and I was going to say in, above just the honesty and the the candor, which clearly comes through in your posts, there's also a lot of inspiration in terms of the way that you're tackling this. Now, you, you said that the Prime Minister wanted to talk about your, your resilience and get an understanding. I mean, we're super interested in that as well. How have you been able to to maintain such a positive approach and, and do all the amazing things that you've done um, in the face of, of this sort of diagnosis?
3: It's a hard one. Um, look, I think you built up for a lot of it. I think defense helped a lot. If I wasn't in the defense, it would have happened a lot differently, just the way you approach situations. Um, But at the same time, you know, and I try and log this, especially in the earlier days, my Instagram, when I struggled. um, And I talk a lot about, it's okay to struggle, um, but you also then need to find a, an end point to that struggle or something to, to bring you up out of it. Um, Like I'm a big fan of that. Are you okay stuff? But then, there's another flip side to it that is it's okay to be okay as well. Um, that it, no one, everyone understands that it's fine if you're not okay, but you can't stay there forever. You need to somehow find a path to being okay again. It's not a normal stage to live in. And look, those first months, six months sucked real, like really for sucked. Um, but you know, it's just a new days tomorrow and you get some real realizations about yourself, of unimportance in the world. I remember like I found it weird when every Thursday morning um, the rubbish truck would come pick up my rubbish and go on and it would happen every time. And it's like my whole world has essentially blown up and changed yet that bloke doesn't give a fuck. He's just doing his job. Like, and it was my first, like, although that, you know, everyone knows the world doesn't revolve around them logically, but this was a real like kick of fuck. The world doesn't revolve around you at all. that, even if I rolled over and died, he's not going to fuck it. No, like, mm. no, you no big deal, but you are a big deal to the people who you're a big deal to. So be more of a big deal to those people, you know, and look after them and, you know, try and be closer with them as you can. But to the people you're not, you know, well, that's just going to happen. Um, anyway. And you know, I always approached it, you know, fucking being able to laugh at yourself, I think is one of the most important things ever. So the day I got diagnosed was my 22nd birthday, March 10th, um, 2018. And the f- fucking boys ran a surprise party for me called Willie's death party <laughs> of pricks. Um, that <laughs> night. So it was about, there was about four hours. If I went home, went in bed and cried for, you know, maybe an hour and a half. It was four hours of shit. Next thing I'm getting dragged around to my mate Suds's house to go to Willie's death party. Um, and have some beers with them and everything before we started, before I started chemo. Um, But it was sort of like a, that's enough of that, mate. You ain't upset. Come on, come with us and we're going to go do this. Um, And I think there's a a chance of just stopping something. So
1: there's a couple of interesting lines from you. Um, One, the cancer has definitely grown me to seeing things from other perspectives. And Ben talked about that growth and how it did pivot a little bit. Scott Morrison also quotes you in his Anzac Day Dawn Service speech and he says that you say if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Is that an example of your mates circling around you to provide that level of support?
3: Yeah, always. And it's, you know, my mates and then the community I've sort of have around me of um, you know, both serving members and non serving members. Um, and, and, what I try and give for people as well, you know, privately is, um, some way of, um, you know, that we're all in this and together in some way, you know, we're all pretty bloody lucky in Australia. You know, we have some of the best medical, um, medical staff in the world and treatments and it's all f- bloody for free. Um uh, <laughs> may as well be for free. Um, that, you know, no matter what happens, you'll be looked after. Um, and to build a community that, that does look after you and that you're an active member in looking after someone else as well. Mm.
1: You're on a show called Taboo by the comedian Harley Breen, which was described as a show about laughing at people you shouldn't really be laughing at. How was that experience, having people use you as a form of comedy?
3: I think people bloody use me as a form of comedy anyway. <laughs> That's um, the um,
1: uh,
3: you know, the, the, the lunchroom in an infantry battalion... Um, not much is off limits. Um, <laughs> say even with this um, Corona, the boys were putting all no, because I've been in isolation and like, no, nah, I've killed him first. Like I'm claiming that as my kill. If Willie dies and I've given it in the virus. Um, so there's nothing new. Like I want people to, you know, not laugh at me, but it, it, there's no, um, I've figured like um, offense is taken, not given. Um, you take offense to something. I don't offend you. Um, there are people are offended by things I say, but I'm sort of like, well, I always say it about myself, so you don't really have the right to be offended at it. I, it to some degree. Um, and I think that was great. It's, it's showing that even at the shittest time, you know, you, you should be able to laugh at yourself and this is what's happening. There's time to be serious and there's time to stuff around. Um, and the funniest jokes are always the ones that sort of edge into that serious space. Um, and that show, that was one of the most fun things <laughs> I've ever done as far as we basically went up in a big mansion in the, um, in the Hunter Valley for a week um, and we had our own chef and everything. And it was just, this is why free-to-air TV is bloody broke. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm looking at Grog and um, we had our own chef and massive crew. But we only worked like two hours a day of filming and the rest was just like, you know, do whatever because they all expected us to be very, very sick you know, like I can only work for half an hour a day and then need a sleep because chemo. Um, but I'd really lined up my chemo treatments. Well, I sort of skipped one <laughs> yeah. and whatever so I could do this. And it was like, no, nah, I'm ready. Let's get in the pool with mention and have some beers. And, um, it was an awesome thing. And I really, um, I really hope it shows, you know, that not, or oh, not nothing's off limits, but there are, there's always, you know, a silver lining to things. Um, But more importantly, I hope that someone who's struggling with, you know, there's multiple people a day diagnosed with this, um, but it almost gives them a bit of a, yeah, that is funny. Um, I can laugh myself a little bit about this. Like, yeah, it sucks, but it's just, it's just a thing.
1: Mm. This year, you were the South Australian nominee for the Young Australian of the Year. I see also on your social media, you've started the It's Cooking with Willie. Everyone's familiar about your tyre flip challenge. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of tyre flips you've been doing, but that's all been raising money for charity. So, Willie, what's next?
3: What haven't you done
1: that you want to do?
3: Oh, this is going to be the most selfish part of my bloody podcast, Um, and I guess of my life, but but what's next to me is taking some time for myself. Um, I you know, the last time I took leave from work, um, was in 2017. Um, I haven't been home since 2017 either, um, back to Warrnambool. Um, so, you know, I basically got diagnosed, struggled for, let's say six months stepped into then playing the first tire flip and then straight into my media, um, like TV stuff, and then planning another tire flip and some other events around it. Um, And I love raising money for things and having a sense of a purpose to help. But I've never really just taken some time and leave for myself. Um, So I guess from here for me, I'm focusing more on my own stuff. Um, As far as, you know, some traveling for myself, um, moving into it, I will be separating from the defense force. Um, So moving across um, into a different industry Um, and there's going back to, you know more of a normal life um but there will be there's definitely charity stuff coming it's just taking time for me
0: willie i reckon after all that you've done all that you've been through um your use of the word selfish is is pretty out of place mate i, I think there's there's nothing more deserved than than taking a bit of time and you know speaking of time thank you for your time today it's been awesome to finally line up the the moons to, to actually get a chat in, but we certainly look forward to, to seeing what you're going to go on to and it's, it's no doubt going to be bigger and better things, mate. Thanks a lot for
3: your chat. Yeah. No, no, thanks guys for having me on. It's a real, real honour.
2: We are inspired by people who are doing things bigger than themselves and know how tough it can be for those who volunteer and run charities. If this is you, we'd love to spread the word to the Unforgiving 60 community by advertising your cause on an episode for free. Just complete the short charity fact sheet on our website, www.unforgiving60.com, and we will do the rest. And while we have you, thank you for your selflessness.